verse 1 of chapter 12. Righteous are You, O Lord, that I would plead my case with You. Indeed, I would discuss matters of justice with You. Why, Jeremiah? Because he knows the Lord is righteous. And he knows to talk about righteousness and justice with God will always be a good thing. It's not always clear with people where justice and righteousness lies. But man, you go to the Lord, it's always clear. Why has the way of the wicked prospered? Jeremiah now asks. I, I want to talk about this, Lord. I'm going to bring this before you because I, I, I'm concerned about this. Why are all those who deal in treachery at ease? You've planted them and they also have taken root. They grow and they have even produced fruit. And you are near to their lips or to their mouth but far from their mind. The word mind there is literally kidneys. But as the Hebrews use it, it's heart. You're near to their mouth, but you're far from their heart. But you know me, O Lord. You see me. And you examine my heart's attitude toward you. Drag them off like sheep for the slaughter and set them apart for a day of carnage. How long is the land to mourn and the vegetation of the countryside to wither for the wickedness of those who dwell in it? Animals and birds have been snatched away because men have said, you will not see our latter ending. Okay, so Jeremiah is praying. The Lord had answered Jeremiah's distress call. God said, Jeremiah, I'm going to take care of it. I will deal with the men of Anatot. And Jeremiah says, as long as we're talking about this, Lord, i got a problem. I'm being threatened here for doing the right thing. And I see all these wicked and evil people doing the wrong thing and they're fruitful and blessed for it. What's up with this? You know the Bible never specifically answers that question. Why do wicked people get good things? How come sinful people seem to flourish while the righteous seem to fall? Why is that the way it is? That doesn't seem fair, Lord. And God never answers the question. You know what He says? Trust me. He doesn't give the answer. He just says, trust me. Would you just trust me? Feinberg writes, the only final answer is faith in the sovereign wisdom and righteousness of God. You don't have to know why things seem unfair, unjust in the world. God just says, I know, I know, I see all that. Trust me. Just put your faith in me. Trust that I am righteous. Trust in my justice. Trust me. 1 John 5, 4, John writes, This is the victory that has overcome the world. Our answers to all of our difficult questions. Oh no, that's not what it says. This is the victory that has overcome the world. Our faith. And faith, gang, it is just trusting Him whether we understand all these other things or not. And don't you find, brothers and sisters, that peace and contentment come when you just trust Him? When you let all the questions fall to the side and go, you know what, I don't get this. I don't know why these things happen. But I trust You, Lord. I'm just going to believe You for Your promises. (laughs) Just have faith. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 39 tells us the prophets, the fathers, the men of old, the women of faith, all these people of great faith, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised. Abraham died without seeing the promised land completely in his people's hands. Start going down the line. Isaac, Jacob, died without seeing the promise fulfilled. Jacob dies going down into Egypt. He he dies in Egypt. He doesn't see all of his offspring back in the land. 
track it down through the years. The prophets prophesied of the millennial kingdom. They haven't seen it yet. They died without seeing the result of all the things they prophesied. They had faith. They gained approval for their faith, but they didn't see the fulfillment of their faith. The Hebrew writer says, because God provided something better for us, so that apart from us, they would not be made perfect. So God said to the prophets what He says to you and to me right now. Trust me. Just trust me. And let me take care of the rest. Well, the Lord hears Jeremiah. And again, good old real Jeremiah lifts up this issue. Well, what about this, Lord? What about injustice? I love God's answer. Verse 5. If you have run with footmen and they have tired you out, then how can you compete with horses? (laughs) If you fall down in a land of peace, how will you do in the thicket of the Jordan? In other words... Patience, Jeremiah. Buddy, you're just getting started. You haven't even known real persecution yet. Like you're going to know real persecution. I know this is hard, but this isn't even close to what's coming. If you can't keep up now, when you're just racing the footmen, when I have you racing the horses, how are you going to keep up? What's the point? He reminds me of what the Hebrew writer said, Hebrews 12.4, You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. I asked this question when we were in the Philippines. How many people here have shed blood for their faith in Jesus? One person raised his hand. Harvin Alora. Harvin and Cleophi, we support. There are missionaries, Pastor Harvin in, in the Philippines, in Cebu. <laughs> and I was stunned, because I didn't think anyone would raise their hand. Anyone here shed blood for your faith in Jesus? You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood and you're striving against sin. I hear God saying to me, Rick, if you've run with the footmen and they've tired you out, how can you compete with the horses? I want you to run the real race. Run the race to win. But if you're tuckered out before you even come around the first stretch... Now, this is how God answers Jeremiah's discouraging question. And my initial reaction was, Lord, how is that encouraging? (laughs) Jeremiah says, this is hard. And God says, going to get harder. Well, thanks a lot for that, Lord. (laughs) How is it encouraging? I'll tell you how. It's both perspective and preparation. It's perspective and preparation. It's not as bad now as you think it is, Jeremiah. I know you're worried about these people gunning for you. I know all that, but it's not that bad yet. You're fine. You're okay. And it's preparation because God knows what is coming. And even when it gets bad, think about this. If God knows the bad thing that's about to hit that's coming around the corner in your life, if He knows about it, it means that when it hits you, He's there. He's aware of it. He's already got plans in motion to help you through what you don't see coming. And he tells this to Jeremiah. It's going to get harder. Sub-message. I'm with you in this. I'm out ahead of you in this. I think about what Jesus said to the church of Philadelphia. I believe our church. Because I desperately want to be known as Philadelphia. Church of the last days, church of the open door, the church that's getting the gospel message out. And Jesus says to that church, because you have kept the word of my perseverance, 
I will keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Translation, if you hang in there, you're going to get raptured. If you hold fast, you'll be caught up and you will not experience the wrath that is about to come on this world. Going on in verse 6. Even your bro- Okay, here we go. Even your brothers and the household of your father, even they have dealt treacherously with you, even they have cried aloud after you. Do not believe them, although they may say nice things to you, Jeremiah. So now God reveals something else that's going on. The conspiracy in his hometown has bled into his own household. Apparently the prophet is unaware that his own dad and brothers are part of the conspiracy for his life. And God now reveals it to him. And Jesus was spot on, wasn't he? A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. And that was Jeremiah. Dishonored by his family. Dishonored by his friends. Dishonored by his hometown. But now watch what the Lord does. Interesting. He takes the prophet and he directs him to himself. That is to the Lord. God says, Jeremiah, we've talked enough about you. Look at me. He says in verse 7, I have forsaken my house. I have abandoned my inheritance. I have given the beloved of my soul into the hand of her enemies. Perspective. Jeremiah, your own household has rejected you but you have no idea the pain that I'm feeling having rejected the, the people that I love. I'm the rejecter in this scenario. Brothers and sisters, listen. When you feel demoralized by your own hometown, when you feel demoralized by your family who have rejected you because you have faith in Jesus, or demoralized by friends who just don't want to be around you anymore because you keep bringing up Jesus, when you get to that place, Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Because He gets it. Because He's had His family reject Him. And He had His friends reject Him. He had His own people reject Him. And the world rejected Him by putting Him up on a cross. So turn your eyes upon Jesus. God does a marvelous thing here. He takes hold of Jeremiah and He he says, Now look at me. Pay attention to me. Watch me, Jeremiah. Don't turn away from me. He says in verse 8, My inheritance has become to me like a lion in the forest. She has roared against me. Look at it this way. You have a little puppy dog. Cute little puppy. Little fuzzy puppy. And he's fun to play with. And you throw the ball and he chases it. He licks your face. And he's just adorable little fluffy, fuzzy Rottweiler. (laughs) Adorable little puppy. And then he gets big. And one day you walk into the house and he takes a chunk of flesh out of your side. The dog that I raised, that I loved. God compares Judah to a lion. Of course he does. Lion of the tribe of Judah. The lion was the picture of Judah. And he says, this little cub, this cute little lion cub, my lion. Judah has now become to me like a lion in the forest roaring against me, threatening me, rebelling against me. Wanting to take a bite out of me if they could. Therefore, listen to the Lord's word here, I have come to hate her. Hate is as strong an emotion as love. 
And by the way, the Hebrew word for hate here, sane, literally means hate. I have come to hate her, he says. It's open hostility. It's the kind of hostility you would have toward an enemy. But it's the kind of hostility that comes out of a love relationship now broken and the very person you gave all of your heart and your love to now has completely rejected you and there's this emotion that rises up. And the Hebrew word for it is sane. It's hate. Does God literally hate them? I thought God was love. Can God hate? Yes, He can. God hates sin. God hates the things that bring pain and anguish into your life. God hates division among brothers and sisters in a church. He hates that. The Bible tells us that. Same word, sane. Does God hate Israel here? No. But the outward appearance of God removing His love and protection from them comes off as hate. It looks like hate. He has turned His back on His own people. Remember, Jeremiah 31, verse 3, He will reaffirm, I have loved you with an everlasting love. So if God loves Israel with an everlasting love, but in this instance He hates them, how does that work? The actions and the behavior. There's an outward picture of hatred going on, but the inward truth is God still loves His people. Remember, this judgment is because they blatantly broke the covenant that they freely made with the Lord, saying, Amen, Amen, Amen. Deuteronomy 11.26 Moses said, I'm setting before you today a blessing and a curse. The blessing, if you listen to the commandments of the Lord your God, which I'm commanding you today, and the curse, if you do not listen to the commandments of the Lord your God, but turn aside from the way which I'm commanding you today by following other gods which you have not known. Verse 9 Is my inheritance like a speckled bird of prey to me? Are the birds of prey against her on every side? Go go gather all the beasts of the field. Bring them to devour. Many shepherds have ruined my vineyard. They have trampled down my field. They have made my pleasant field a desolate wilderness. It has been made a desolation. Desolate. It mourns before me. The whole land has been made desolate because no man lays it to heart. In other words, no man loves this land like I love this land. This beautiful land that I gave to my people, they don't care. Verse 11, verse 12, On all the bare heights in the wilderness destroyers have come, for a sword of the Lord is devouring from one end of the land even to the other. There is no peace for anyone. They have sown wheat and have reaped thorns. They have strained themselves to no profit. But be ashamed of your harvest because of the fierce anger of the Lord. The Lord quickly fires off several word pictures. And each one of these describes the broken covenant here. He says, my people are like speckled birds. In other words, a specific, peculiarly colored bird. A different kind of bird in the land that that literally these speckled birds would more keep to themselves and the other birds would keep away from them. And he's speaking of the Jewish people. They're like speckled birds. And they're attacked by other birds of prey. Those are the surrounding nations that would attack in verse 9. Also in verse 9, he mentions beasts of the field, which is Babylon, coming to attack. Verse 10, he mentions shepherds. These are not good shepherds. These are false shepherds who trample down the beautiful land. He refers to the land as my vineyard, my field, my pleasant land. All loving descriptions of his land. And then finally, in verse 11, he repeats the word desolate three times. Shamem, shamem, shamem. 
and expresses this incredible grief that he has over the loss and the desolation of his land. Now slow up for just a moment. Something amazing happens in the midst of this. Something very different from the way you or I may go off. Cheryl's got to cool me down sometimes. When, when I really start to go off on one of the kids, when I really get upset, you know, a grade comes home and it's just like not the grade that should ever be on a report of one of my children, you know. And I start to go off. Cheryl knows I snowball. And what starts as a serious admonition becomes, you know, a 15 or 20 minute lecture. And Cheryl starts going, honey, honey, we got it, we got it. I'm like, don't stop me! You know, I'm going off. I'm not that bad. God is in the middle of pouring out fierce judgment. And then all of a sudden, verse 14. Thus says the Lord concerning all my wicked neighbors who strike at the inheritance with which I have endowed my people Israel. Behold, I am about to uproot them from their land and will uproot the house of Judah from among them. What's he saying? Israel's going down. They're a desolation. They've done all these bad things. And by the way, I'm going to save them. I'm going to go to Babylon that uprooted them. And I'm going to uproot Judah from Babylon. And I'm going to bring them home. And I'm going to restore them to the land. I love that. Judgment, judgment, judgment. Grace. I'm going to give my people grace. He promises I'm going to judge the nations. I'm going to bring my people home again. Guess what just happened in verse 14? The broken conditional covenant is overridden by God's unconditional covenants. See, he's got another way. He knows the people are not going to keep covenant, so he keeps his other covenants, which bring the people back to the land. The Abrahamic covenant, Genesis chapter 12. The land covenant, repeated in Genesis 13, 15, and 17. And the Davidic covenant, 2 Samuel chapter 7. All of this, God says, I'm going to get it done. With or without the help of my people, I'm going to get it done. I'm going to uproot you from your captivity and bring you right back to this land. I love that. As for me, Psalm 2 verse 6, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I'm going to get it done, says the Lord. And verse 16, he says, Then if they will really learn the ways of my people... To swear by my name as the Lord lives, even as they taught my people to swear by Baal, they will be built up in the midst of my people. But if they will not listen, then I will uproot that nation, uproot and destroy it, declares the Lord. More grace. Who is they? Gentiles. It's the Gentiles. He says, I'm going to uproot those nations who have uprooted my nation. But... If they will learn the ways of my people and swear by my name as the Lord lives, even as they taught my people to swear by Baal, then they will be built up in the midst of my people. Again, he's talking about the millennial kingdom. He's talking about the fulfillment now of the covenant that he made with Abraham in Genesis 12, that I will bless you through you, I will bless all the nations of the earth. They is the Gentiles if they will learn the ways of my people. He points ahead. And it's a beautiful, graceful irony. Look at it this way. Instead of the nations teaching God's people idolatry, God's people will teach the nations intimacy with the one true God. God flips the whole thing on its ear. 
He turns it upside down and says, now we're going to see how this works when I make it all come together. Now, chapter 13, we'll do this very quickly. Chapter 13 gives the message of the broken covenant with several very interesting word pictures. We'll just point out three specific ones, three larger ones here. And these word pictures seem very different, but there's a connection to all of them. I was reading this. There were several commentators who came out and said, these are just kind of shotgun word pictures that are unrelated to each other. No, they are all related. So see if you can see how they're related. The first word picture is a damaged belt. A damaged belt. Verse 1. Thus the Lord said to me, Go and buy yourself a linen waistband or belt or sash and put it around your waist, but do not put it in water. Now they would sometimes buy a new waistband and they would put it in water. Same same thing that I do when I get a 100% cotton t-shirt. Throw it in the wash. Get it to shrink so it's the right size before I wear it. Okay? It says don't do that. Just buy it brand new and immediately put it around your waist. So verse 2, I bought the waistband in accordance with the word of the Lord and put it around my waist. Then the word of the Lord came to me a second time saying... Take the waistband that you have bought, which is around your waist, and arise. Go to the Euphrates and hide it there in a crevice of the rock. So I went and hid it by the Euphrates as the Lord had commanded me. Now there's some disagreement here. The Bible says, your translation may say Euphrates. Some translations say a different word. They might say parath. And it's because the translators aren't sure. Is he really talking about the Euphrates? Does Parath refer to the Euphrates or does Parath refer to Ephrathah? Bethlehem. Could be Ephrathah because Bethlehem's right there, much closer and much more obvious to the people what Jeremiah is doing. Bethlehem, and he does it right here in the land. Which one is it? No idea. Verse 5. <laughs> or verse 6. After many days the Lord said to me, Arise, go to the Euphrates or go to Parath. And take from there the waistband which I commanded you to hide there. Now, he hides it here in the cleft of a rock. If it's by the Euphrates, obviously it's by a river. If it's by Bethlehem, it could have been by a streamlet or some kind of underground water. The point is, this nice brand new linen belt is buried underground in a wet, kind of moist underground place. When he digs it back up, verse 7, I took the waistband from the place where I had hidden it, and lo, the waistband was ruined! It was totally worthless. You know, that's how I would say it. See, I think the Lord's going to do some amazing thing here. All right, it's going to be a sign. I'm going to take my brand new belt. Really cool belt, by the way. Got it at American Eagle, and I'm going to take my cool new belt, and I'm going to go bury it in the ground, and it's going to get all sludgy and musty and gross and rotten, but when I dig it up, it's going to be brand new. See, that's what I would expect. He digs it up, and it's like, whoop. Lord, it's ruined. Thus says the Lord, verse 9, Just so will I destroy the pride of Judah and the great pride of Jerusalem. Imagine one of those Texas belt buckles, you know? Any of you have one of those big honking things? Does she really? Deb has one? (laughs) What does it say, Deb? You gotta tell me what it says. WWF. <laughs> yes, and she's still holding on to it. Big old belt buckle, big old belt, a source of pride. You know, this is, some have said that this is underwear. It's not. At least my opinion, 
the word doesn't appear to be the same word that would be undergarment. This is a garment. This is wrapped around the outside and tied up. It's a nice linen belt. It's a good looking belt. And it's ruined. It's completely destroyed. Lots of weird interpretations about this, but the end result is the same. However you interpret it, is it underwear, is it an outward belt, whatever, it all portrays the ruin of Judah. But here's, think about this. It's a belt. The Hebrew word is etzor. And etzor means a sash or a belt around the waist, and it's a derivative of the word adzar. It comes from the same word. Adzor belt, adzar is to gird. Or to wear, to put on. Jeremiah 1.17 Now gird up your loins and arise and speak to them all which I command you. Do not be dismayed before them or I will dismay you before them. God says gird up. You would gird up when you went to war if you had to run to someone's house. You know, if, if you're a kid and you're, and you're wearing your normal Jewish attire and you've got the belt on and, and mom says, listen, I, gotta, I need you to run down to the neighbors and get a cup of sugar and run back and I need it here in about two minutes. The kid would gird up. You take the long outer robe, you'd pull it up, you'd tie the belt under it to hold it up out of the way of your legs so that you could get somewhere quickly and not trip on your robes. So the whole idea of the belt has something to do with preparation. You know, with readiness. God says, buy a linen belt. Note that, it's a linen belt. What Hebrew clothing was specifically made of linen? The outer garment that was worn by who? The priests. Leviticus 16.4 He shall put on the holy linen tunic and the linen undergarments shall be next to his body and he shall be girded with a linen sash. There's your etzor. And attire with the linen turban. These are all holy garments. So gird up. Gird up your loins. Be prepared. Be priestly. And so he takes this beautiful, prepared, priestly belt, this garment, and it's ruined. God called His people to be prepared to bring His Word to the world. God called His people originally. All of Israel was supposed to be a priesthood. Remember what happened? They rebelled in the wilderness. And so God gave the priesthood to the Levites. But originally, all of Israel were supposed to be a holy, a royal priesthood. We're a royal priesthood. May we not be ruined. So preparedness, the priesthood, and this is what I love the most, It's very, very personal. This damaged belt is a picture of something very personal. God says, Israel, Judah, you were like a belt right around my waist. Right next to my body. Very, very close to me. I wanted you around my waist, but you ended up ruined like this belt that Jeremiah dug up from the ground. That's the first word picture. Now we come to a different kind of belt. Verse 12. You are to speak to this this word to them. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, every jug is to be filled with wine. So a different kind of belt. A little different kind of belt. And when they say to you, do we not very well know that every jug is to be filled with wine? Okay, now, what's, what's happening here? You need to understand this single verse here. It's believed that this was a proverb. A proverb spoken in Israel, in Judah at the time, that spoke of continued prosperity. That even as the threats of Babylon and the preaching of Jeremiah and some of the other prophets was going on, they're like, every jug's going to be filled with wine. Fill up every jug with wine. We're fine. We're prosperous. Every house has wine. We're good to go. 
And so the Lord says, I want you to say this proverb to the people. Every jug is to be filled with wine. So Jeremiah does. And those sitting around who hear him say, do we not know that every jug is to be filled with wine? We know this. And God says, when they say that, you say this. Verse 13. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I am about to fill all the inhabitants of this land, the kings that sit on for David on his throne, the priests, the prophets, all the inhabitants of Jerusalem with drunkenness. You think wine is prosperity to you? I'm going to fill you up with drunkenness. I will dash them against each other, both fathers and sons together, declares the Lord. I will not show pity, nor be sorry, nor have compassion, so as not to destroy them. The picture is of a drunken brawl. Okay, a damaged belt, a destroyed belt. Now we're a drunken brawl. Fathers, brothers, families, falling all over each other as if they were drunk, but in reality, they're in the midst of invasion. And then Jeremiah speaks. These are Jeremiah's words. Listen, give heed, do not be haughty, for the Lord has spoken. Give glory to the Lord your God before He brings darkness and before your feet stumble on the dusky mountains. And while you are hoping for light, He makes it into deep darkness and He turns it into gloom. But if you will not listen to it, my soul will sob in secret for such pride and my eyes will bitterly weep and flow down with tears because the flock of the Lord has been taken captive. Do you see what the connecting issue is between the damaged belt and the drunken brawl? One word, pride. Pride is the problem. Pride is the issue. If you look back in in verse 9, He says, So I will destroy the pride of Judah and the great pride of Jerusalem. And whether it's portrayed as a damaged belt or a drunken brawl, as Jeremiah says in verse 17, my soul will sob in secret for such pride. Pride's the issue. Verse 18, Say to the king and the queen mother, Take a lowly seat, for your beautiful crown has come down from your head. Probably Jehoiachin and his mother Nehushta. These two would be carried off to Babylon in the second of three deportations, which means around 597 B.C. So verse 18, that's about where we are historically. 597 B.C., the second deportation to Babylon. Temple still standing. That will come down in 586. But right now, Jehoiachin, Coniah, and his mother, they're taken off, the queen mother. Verse 19, continuing on. The cities of the Negev have been locked up and there is no one to open them. And all Judah has been carried into exile, wholly carried into exile. He mentions the Negev because that's the furthest southernmost part of Judah. So in other words, from Jerusalem in the north all the way to the Negev, that whole land, all of Judah is going to be wiped out by Babylon. Lift up your eyes, verse 20, and see those coming from the north. Where is the flock that was given you, your beautiful sheep? What will you say when He appoints over you and you yourself have taught them former companions to be head over you? That's former friends. And He's talking about people that they had made alliances with who now are going to rule over them. Tried to make alliances with Egypt. Egypt's going to rule some of them. Tried to make alliances with what's left of Assyria. Their countries ruling over them. Other countries, Ammon, Moab, the Edomites are going to rule over. And of course... Babylon. Will not pangs take hold of you like a woman in childbirth? And here we come to the third and probably most shocking of all the pictures. 
If you say in your heart, verse 22, why have these things happened to me? Because of the magnitude of your iniquity, your skirts have been removed and your heels have been exposed. Can the Ethiopian change his skin? Or the leopard his spots? Then you also can do good who are accustomed to doing evil. Therefore I will scatter them like drifting straw or chaff to the desert wind. This is your lot, the portion measured to you from me, declares the Lord, because you have forgotten me and trusted in falsehood. So I myself have also stripped your skirts off over your face that your shame may be seen. As for your adulteries and your lustful names, the lewdness of your prostitution on the hills and the fields, I have seen your abominations. Woe to you, O Jerusalem! How long will you remain unclean? And the third word picture is a destitute brothel. He compares Judah to a prostitute. Verses 22 and 26 22, your skirts have been removed and your heels have been exposed. Verse 26, I have stripped your skirts off over your face that your shame may be seen. Gang, these describe the public humiliation and the disgrace that would be heaped on a prostitute. And God says, this is what I'm going to do to you, Judah. You will be disgraced and destitute in the same way. I read that and I thought, wow, okay, A damaged belt is one thing. And a drunken brawl, well, that's another thing. But to describe the people as a destitute prostitute, that's intense. And I was reading this and thinking, no sweet little girl dreams of one day growing up to be a harlot. No adorable little girl wants to be, aspires to be someday a prostitute. And yet that's exactly what the children of Israel had become in their chasing after idols. And by the way, it wasn't just idolatry in and of itself. It was the sexual immorality that went along with it. It was prostitution. It was lewdness. It was adultery. You went up to the temple, you went to the temple prostitute. And so this whole thing is just such a, it's a brutal picture, but it's a very real picture. And think about this. For that sweet little girl who becomes a prostitute, what happens is the heart, the more the heart is given over and given over and given over to the deeds of the flesh, the harder and more scarred the heart becomes. And it's a picture of Judah. Verse 23 says, Can the Ethiopian change his skin? Can the leopard change his spots? What's he saying? He describes things that cannot be changed. You don't change skin color. (laughs) Naomi my little seven-year-old, when she first came home, she was four. And she was completely convinced that she was going to turn white. Or peach, like she calls me. Dad, you're not white, you're peach. I'm like, thanks. She, she thought that. She said she literally believed that that was going to happen. You know, and, and what I thought was really ironic about that is, is how Caucasians like myself are always trying to get darker. <laughs> We go to tanning beds, and I grew up in Southern California. You lived on the beach because you wanted to be dark. You know, we always want to be what we're not. I think is the issue there. But God is saying the Ethiopian is not going to change his skin color. He's dark. That's the way I made him. That's his color. It's not going to change. The leopard is not going to suddenly one day lose his spots, and so sinful people are not just going to become unsinful. Sin is unchangeable. 
Sin gets you to the place where you can't change it. It takes control and hold of your entire life. The Spirit explicitly says, 1 Timothy 4.1, that in latter times some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. By means of the hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron, which means there's a point where sin takes a person that is unchangeable. And God says, Judah, you're there. Jesus said in John 8.34, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave of sin. You know what's great about the way this ends? And I didn't want to end here until I realized the very last line of the chapter is actually a word of hope. How long will you remain unclean? The very fact that the question is asked implies that they would one day be clean. How long will you be unclean? Your skirts have been removed. Your heels have been exposed. You know that happened to someone else. Someone else's clothing was removed. Someone else's heels were exposed. In fact, his heel was exposed to the piercing of a nail. Fulfilling the very earliest prophecy ever given in Scripture, Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you, Satan, and between the woman, between your seed and her seed, and he shall bruise you on the head, which means he's going to kill you, but you're going to bruise him on the heel. And the spikes went through the feet of Jesus, bruising his heels. And Jesus stripped on the cross. And Jesus' heels bared. Why? So that the unchangeableness of sin in our lives could be exchanged for grace and we could be healed. Rick, do you dare compare Jesus to a prostitute? Yes, I do. On the cross, Jesus carried all our sin and the shame that goes with it. 2 Corinthians 5.21, you know the verse. He made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. So knowing that, the question is, how long will you remain unclean? Father, through Jeremiah, you ask the question, how long will you remain unclean? And Lord, through Isaiah, you said, wash yourselves and be clean. And I am so thankful for the blood of Christ that cleanses me from all transgression. And I thank You for grace. I pray, Father, if there is anyone either here tonight or eventually listening to this teaching who has not decided now to become clean, may that question ring in our hearts. How long? How long until we come to Jesus for the cleansing blood? Lord Jesus, we confess You and in that confession recognize that we are clean. Praise You, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.